6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. But see, the whole paradox that we think of as a paradox, because we're within that time domain. If you've had any training in paradox resolution, the way you knew that is you go up one scale. The meta system, if you will. And that, meta, that problem goes away once you realize you're outside, that God is outside time altogether. And without the benefit of Einstein's uh, general theory and without the benefit of modern physics, H.A. Ironside many years ago dramatized exactly this issue with what is now known rhetorically in the field as Ironside's door. He, he, he hypothesizes that he's going down a hallway, sees a door. Over the door it says, whosoever will may enter. He looks at it. He has total free will. He can go through the door or not. He decides to. Goes through the door. On the other side of the door, he encounters a banquet room. There's an elegant table set. There's a place. And he goes and he looks. There's a, a, a place card with his name on it. They're expecting him. Blows him away. He looks back at the door he just came through. And over it says, on his side, it says, foreordained before the foundation of the world. Two sides of the same door. One is seen from within the time domain, one from outside. No paradox, not, from, not in those terms. When did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. You and I have no ability to grasp that. Paul tried hard. He spent six chapters in Ephesians trying to get it through. But there's no way that we can really appreciate that. The Father of Eternity, a title of Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace, we're familiar with that one. For lots of reasons. Romans 5.1, it's your verse on that. Or Luke 2.14, what do the angels say? I heard some commentary, I haven't checked it, they say that angels never sing, only the redeemed can sing. Well, maybe. I don't really buy that because uh, uh, there was one angel that had elegant singing voices. And we'll encounter him in Isaiah 14. There's a chariot bim that got into a lot of trouble. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. Zeal of the Lord of hosts. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts. And from here, if you like, you can do a study of sanctified jealousy. Paul talks about that. His jealousy for you as believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For those of you who want to start on that tra- uh, trip and go down that road. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We see that on Christmas cards. It always intrigues me. What, what's such a popular verse, and yet, boy, is it pregnant with insight in terms of God's whole plan. God's overview. In two little verses. From the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to the government of eternity. Interesting. This perhaps also amplifies what Jesus Christ said when he said, All power is given unto me. We read that in Matthew 28, near the end of Matthew's Gospel. 
we probably have no conception of how far that really reaches. But moving on, verse 8. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighteth upon Israel. And again, you have those two words. When Jacob's name was changed, it's interesting how in the scripture, when people's names are changed, they generally stick. When Abraham was changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, from that point on, that's the way they're always referred to. Jacob, not so. When he was in the flesh, they called him Jacob. On those rare occasions when he was really walking by the Spirit, he was called Israel as, a human, as, an, as an individual. It's always interesting. We always have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise God for that. If God can justify Jacob, there's hope for all of us. The Lord sent, unto, sent a word unto Jacob, and it lighteth upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim, and the inhabitant of Samaria. See, again, Ephraim's used as a synecdoche, that is, a, as a generic for the northern kingdom. And, uh, and the inhabitant of Samaria. That say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them to cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him. Ed Rezin being the king of Assyria. And join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. And they shall devour Israel with open mouth. See, this is Isaiah again continuing the, this uh, dirge of the judgment coming on the northern kingdom. We find a phrase then at the end of verse 12. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Don't misunderstand that phrase. It's not that his hand is stretched out for saving. It's his hand is stretched out for smiting. We tend to reach that, you know, that his hand is stretched out. We generally somehow impute to that, you know, our New Testament perspective. No, no, no. In this case, it's a judgment thing. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Don't visualize a hand of grace. Visualize a clenched fist, if you will, or something, if you want to get the idiomatic. Now, the reason I emphasize this, that phrase occurs four times. You'll see in the English the, the stanzas of Isaiah. We'll see this in verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. The first four verses of chapter 10 really seem to be uh, more properly conceived as part of chapter 9. Bear in mind again, chapter divisions are man's addition about the 14th century, 15th century. And another little ground rule you'll discover as you study the Bible that more often than not, the chapter divisions are in the wrong place. If you're reading a critical chapter, pick it up a verse or two from the previous chapter. It'll be instructive. Even such famous passages like 1 Corinthians 13, start a verse early. We're going to see that in Isaiah 53, the, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. You really start two or three verses earlier in chapter 52. So recognize, always keep in mind that chapter divisions are man's editing and often done with an incomplete perspective. So they're just, they're convenience, but they're nothing more than references. Don't attach too much significance to the chapter breaks. Anyway, we're down at verse 12. For the people turneth not unto him who smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. And we're going to compare this to Isaiah 19 when we get there. I won't badger it here. But there is, verse 15, one of these little hints that's going to be meaningful to you, those of you that are students of the book of Revelation. Notice verse 15. The ancient and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. These are idioms that are strange to our ears because they emerge from a different cultural background. 
But again, the book of Revelation is in code. The writer of the book of Revelation assumes you have a full command of the rest of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. Every phrase in the book of Revelation is in code. Every one of those codes are explained somewhere else in the Scripture. And one of the evidences of the integrity of the design of these 66 books is that if you study the book of Revelation thoroughly, competently, it will take you into every book in the Bible. Every book in the Bible. But when we encounter these phrases in the book of Revelation, it sounds strange or bizarre. It's only because we're not familiar with the idioms of the Old Testament. And as we go through Isaiah, we're going to pick up several that will really give you a totally different insight in the book of Revelation. Don't misunderstand me. I t- every place that I have screwed up, and there have been many of them. If you listen to my early tapes, I make a number of mistakes. Every place I've made a mistake is because I didn't take it literally enough. By now you've gotten to know me pretty well. You know I'm a nut on this. I really am an extremist in that sense. Even to the encryption thing we talked about last time. Every place in the scripture I see a prophet read another prophet. He always takes it literally. When Daniel reads Jeremiah, he takes him literally. And I've sold that for 20 years. In my early tapes in Revelation, I talk about Revelation 17, 18. And I'm guilty of, indeed, there are some allegorical aspects to Revelation 17, 18. But the literalness of the city of Babylon being rebuilt, I was blindsided on. I gave intellectual assent to the possibility, but I, I didn't really embrace it. And how stupid, if I'd done my homework on Isaiah 13 and 14 and, Re- and Jeremiah 15 and 51... Uh, I'm quickly, of course, redoing those masters. But it's interesting, whenever I've made a mistake, it's because I didn't take it literally enough. And when we get, we're short, we'll we'll get to uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 again here shortly. It's going to be a grabber in terms of what Saddam Hussein has been up to and what the real significance of the Persian Gulf situation is. It's got nothing to do with Baghdad. It has to do with 62 miles south. A city called Babylon is literally being rebuilt and fulfilling the details of Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51. And uh, we'll, we'll obviously develop that when we get there. But here's the insight. The ancient and the honorable, in other words, the reliable prophets, the ancient and the honorable, he is the head. And the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Now, those are idioms that are a little strange to our ears, yet remember those because in the book of Revelation, you've got all kinds of torment that are in the tales. Revelation 9 and so on. So bear that in mind as you go in those forages. Verse 16, for the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they who are led of them are destroyed. You know, I can't help but think how, and I'm hoping most of you in this group are well instructed so you can just chuckle with amusement at the characters, I'll try to use euphemistic words, I am on a public platform, of the so-called Jesus Seminar. You know, I suppose if they cast enough votes, maybe God would resign, I think. It's a, the, the, these guys who have fancy degrees, who have stature in, of sorts in some academic community, who have no concept of what the Bible is all about. Well, Jesus really didn't say this. Well, wait a minute. Most of what he said were quotes from the Old Testament. What do you do with the Old Testament? The one thing that really comes home is if you're going to buy the package, buy the whole package. Don't start cutting and scissoring it. Or it'll all unravel. What makes the Bible exciting is its integrity. Every word, every number, every place name, every detail ties together in ways that we're just now discovering in the original texts and what have you. So... Anyway, what scares me is how they're going to be held accountable. 
You know, it's one thing for you and I to make a, you know, an error or a, a blindside on some subtlety. It's quite another to be unabashedly apostate, to unabashedly publicly, before audiences of millions, cast clouds on the words of Jesus Christ. We call him our kinsman redeemer. We need to remember what the kinsman redeemer really was all about. You and I look to Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer because he's redeeming the land to Israel. He's redeeming us to the Father. Fantastic. The kinsman redeemer is also the avenger of blood in the family. If there was an injury to the family, the kinsman redeemer was the one. He's the avenger of blood that the guy was fleeing to the city of refuge on. And we're going to see that presented in Isaiah as we get later in the book. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they who are led of them are destroyed. Remember what Jesus said, if someone caused the least of these, speaking of the children, to err, it would be better if he had never been born. Better if a millstone was hung around his neck and so forth. Remember those, the strong language didn't mess around. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on their fatherless or widows, for every one is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. And here's that phrase again. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In other words, it ends another stanza. Verse 18, For wickedness burneth as the fire, shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Rough stuff. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, and Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. There's one more stanza of the same kind of dirge here. We'll take the four verses of chapter 10 as part of our study of 9. Woe unto them who decree unrighteous decrees and who write grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from justice and to take away the right from the poor of my people that the widows may be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. What will ye do in the day of visitation and the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help and where will ye leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down unto the prisoners, they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he's going to continue then and talk about the judgment coming upon Assyria. And then he'll talk about the remnant returning and so forth. And we'll stop there for tonight rather than start getting into that. Next time we'll talk about not only chapter 10, we'll finish this judgment on Assyria. We'll jump into chapter 11. Chapter 11 has a lot to say that will be useful to your understanding of the book of Revelation because it deals with idioms for the Holy Spirit that are very unique to the Old Testament, very foreign to our ears in the New. And that will help illuminate several things in the book of Revelation. He'll also talk about... The return of Israel the second time. The first time was after Babylon. The second time started May 14th of 1948. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll probably take the occasion to review the passage in Ezekiel that predicts the very day that Israel was reestablished as a nation and the very day that the city of Jerusalem on June 7th fell under the Star of David. So we'll talk about that a little bit next time. You'll notice as we move through Isaiah, it gets more and more contemporary. Right now, we're obviously heavily hitting this judgment on Assyria. And you and I have sort of a passing interest in that because it's history. There are a few places where it echoes of, of coming judgment in the future, but they're sort of veiled at the moment.
But it's interesting, you know, we sit here and we hear Isaiah prophesy and hammer away at Ahaz and the people of what's coming. And we can't help but sort of smugly from the comfort of our own chair saying, gee, didn't they listen? Didn't they see it was coming? I mean, after all, they had plenty of warning, right? Wait a minute, gang. The Bible says that at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a super state emerging in Europe. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, on it goes. Right now we're seeing the sovereignties of those nations coalesce, coal and the others. We have a super state in Europe, a population three times the size of the United States, industrial might that is the classic heartland concept for control of the planet Earth. Emerging in Europe, while all this is going on. That's kind of interesting. The Bible says while all this is going on, the Soviet Union is going to arm our allies. It lists the allies. They're all in place. The Persian Gulf is not over yet. The Soviet allies of both Syria and Iran are sitting there. Gorbachev, has, he's the wild card there. They have a military that's at least three times the size of ours. We're very proud of our military, and we have a right to be. They did an incredible job. But let's back up a minute, gang. They had six months to move the supplies. They planned a strategy against an a, uh, opponent that has the economic prowess of Kentucky. They were against a leader. Schwarzkopf said it eloquently. You know, he's, he's an incompetent leader, and we had plenty of time to plan it. If something starts to emerge again, you're not going to have six months to move supplies in. You may have two weeks. So it's a different ballgame. Let's take a look at our military. It's excellent. You know, as a Naval Academy guy, I have to admit that in my time in the defense establishment, I've gotten very cynical about the, our defense establishment. I stand back in awe and impressed. I have profound respect for what they pulled off. They're really great. But let's keep it in perspective. If the Soviets start playing in the game, you've got some other things to consider. 100 million Muslims in their constituent base, a third of their population are Islamic. They're going to play for, with the West? No way. They've got an economy that's in real trouble. But they got a military, as I say, two or three times the size of ours. It's a solution looking for a problem. They haven't played that card yet. What's Iran going to do? Haven't played that card yet. While we're watching Iraq, what's Syria done? Take over Lebanon. The Middle East is a long way from being finished, and Ezekiel 38 is in place. All the allies are in place. Ezekiel says that Russia is the one that's going to arm them they have. The technology in Ezekiel 38 is in place. Interesting. While that's all going on, we also see as part of the scenario, the literal city of Babylon is going to reemerge as a major world center. It's not a major center yet, but it's being rebuilt. How fascinating. Don't confuse the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C. with the destruction of Babylon that's described in the Bible. That's never happened. It's got to happen yet. It will happen in the 70th week of Daniel. It's emerging. Saddam Hussein has spent 19 years rebuilding the city. It's starting. Long way from where it needs to be, but it's happening. The Bible three times in the New Testament says the third temple will be rebuilt. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus makes it the centerpiece of his confidential briefing his disciples. Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. John talks about in Revelation chapter 11. The temple, the literal temple. Right now we've got the best scientists Israel has trying to figure out the exact location. Is it north or south? There's arguments both ways. It's interesting. But the point is they're discussing it. They've got people scanning the world for the right kind of marine snails to raise the purple and the blue, the ancient Levitical ways. When we are there, we actually saw the wiring diagram for the temple. Can you believe that? Electrical wiring diagram and so forth. It's happening. Are they actually laying bricks yet? No, but they've trained 200 priests in four yeshivas that are ready to officiate. They've made the implements. 
Are they building the temple tomorrow? No. Will it be a week, a month, a couple of years? I have no idea. But it's happening. Soviet's happening. Europe's happening. Israel's happening. Soviet Union is yet to play their card. What does that all mean? It's not one thing, not one little check verse because of some theory or some chart or some obscure calculation from the book of Hezekiah chapter 3. Nuh-uh. I mean, that's just a rhetorical device. I'm just, don't go look for Hezekiah. <laughs> what does that mean for you and I? You know, we glibly, all of us here, we've been told about Jesus' coming and we embrace the Bible. We've committed ourselves to Jesus Christ. Boy, if there's anyone in here who has not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, see me afterwards. Really. I'm going to take for granted most of you in some way have already done that. But wait a minute, gang. Where are we today? Right in the middle of the climax. It's brewing. It's happening. First of all, the tribulation is the last half of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period. That seven-year period is defined by a treaty that's going to be enforced by the coming world leader. This dramatic, fabulous guy that the world will embrace. And everybody will be deceived. Even the very elect, if it were possible. Now, the 70th week of Daniel is defined by that treaty. He can't enforce that treaty until he comes to power. He can't come to power until he appears publicly. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he cannot appear publicly while we're here. The church is going to be called out first. The pre-trib, the mid-trib, the post-trib, the pre-wrath, all those positions are inadequate because they don't address the real issue. And the real issue is that the rapture of the church occurs before the 70th week of Daniel can even begin. If you really understand God's overview, God's plan for Israel, and God's plan for the church, they're mutually exclusive. And God is getting ready to deal with Israel. You can see it left and right. So that means time is short. Now the question is, what does that do for your priorities and mine? Well, one thing it does is it's got you out here on an evening to study Isaiah. Praise God for that. I hope that's just the beginning. You know, one of the things that we all are admonished to do, and I certainly encourage, and that's to read the Bible every day, devotionally. Five minutes a day, a chapter, pick your program, whatever, but stick with it. Devotionally. Great, because that's the way God will deal with you. It's a dialogue. You pray to Him, He'll answer you, typically, not always, but typically, in the Word. That's His approach to communicate to your life, your decisions, your details. That's all great. But I have another strong suggestion, and I'm really convinced that we need to talk about this a little bit. There's something else I'm going to challenge you to do. All of us have a hobby. Some of us have cameras. Some of you fly airplanes, models, sports, golf, shooting, hunting. We all have hobbies. My suspicion is you know more about your hobby than your profession because it's a labor of passion. It's your first love. Whatever it is, collecting stamps. There's some area that you find satisfaction in that you probably know more about than most people would know normally, right? Because it's your hobby. I'm going to give you a challenge, gang. I'm going to suggest you make the Bible your hobby for a while. Not just read it devotionally. Not just come to a Wednesday night study. That's great. But make a commitment to yourself between you and the Lord to learn this book, these 66. Take one at a time. Whichever one sort of the Spirit draws you into. Instead of blowing 20 bucks on dinner down the street, drop by a bookstore, pick up a commentary. And read it. Find out those authors that you sort of rap with. We all have our favorites. As I've mentioned to you before, I've had the privilege, by the grace of God, to be tutored by three of the greatest guys in the biblical fundamental world. I've been an intimate friend with Walter Martin before he passed away for some almost 20 years. My partner and I were the ones that brought him out to the West Coast. 
And of course, Hal Lindsey and I are intimate friends for 20 years, as you may know. And of course, Chuck and I, I've had the privilege of being close to him for also about 20 years. So I've had the privilege, by the grace of God, to be personally tutored by three of the greatest guys that you could dream about if you were having fantasies about how to really learn the Bible, right? And I'm not trying to boast or brag. I'm going to come to another point. You can have the same privilege to be personally tutored by those three guys or anyone else you happen to respond to. You can do it at your home, in your car, while you commute, or in your workshop on Saturdays, while you're cleaning up the bench or whatever. It's called cassette tapes. I've, over the years, had more people tell me they've learned more in six months with tapes than they have in 12 years of Christian schools and seminary put together about the Bible. I'm going to suggest to you that this is God's Word. It's supernatural. It'll impact your life. But don't just read it devotionally. You should do that. Don't misunderstand me. I can't find the, quite the right word. I, I, I'm tempted to say master it. But of course you can't. I don't really mean that. But I'm saying really learn the Bible, book by book. Take a book, Daniel or Isaiah or Matthew, whatever the Lord leads. But master it. Study it. Really understand it. Find out what the Bible really has to say. It's your only hope of understanding CNN as things start happening. Because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> they don't even know what an Arab is. Most people don't. It's not genealogical. It certainly can't be. And it certainly isn't geographic. What it really means is Islam. And you know, also, that's another thing that we'll be talking more about as we go here. What is Islam really all about? But my suggestion is, time is ripe. You know, you would have gotten a whole different perspective of the Persian Gulf crisis if we'd really been on top of Isaiah 13 and 14 and uh, Jeremiah 15 51 before Saddam Hussein was moving. You've got, got guys like Baker and so forth. They're going to solve 4,000 years of history by running around having a few meetings. Nonsense. Find out what the Bible really says. Because first of all, it's not going to be very long. You're going to run into Daniel. You want to be able to say, hey, I read your book. <laughs> Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.